Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz journeyman trumpeter and arranger David Weiss. These days, he is consumed with performing in the jazz supergroup, The Cookers, with legendary cats like Billy Harper, Cecil McBee, George Cables, Eddie Henderson, and the great Billy Hart. Over the course of our conversation, he delved into his life in New York City, how he started out in art school for photography and made his way to the horn and the land of jazz. He contemplated why he loves jazz, what his legacy might be, and a lot more surprises and stories. So please, dig it, my friends. How you feeling, man? Hey, man. Good. How are you? Everything's good. Hey, thank you for taking some time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Ah, no problem at all. Right on. Let me let me go ahead and dive right in here and ask, what has been going on with you lately? Well, lots of things. Um, first and foremost, of course, there's the cookers. We were on tour in Europe for a good part of the summer, and uh, next week we're going to be at Dizzy's at Jazz Lincoln Center in New York, and um, we're starting to make plans to make our next record. Let me ask you about the success of the Cookers in the 2014 album, Time and Time Again. Was this something that kind of was surprising? It's been such a well-received album, or was it... Give me your thoughts on the band and how, how the evolution has been up to this point. It's always hard to tell... When a record, you know, when a record's going to, for whatever reason, take off more than another one. You know, because so much of it has has to, you know, do with everything else but music. It's hard to know. Certainly, these days where guys are, like, made stars, you know, in 20 minutes, it seems, that method of slowly building your audience, slowly, slowly building the band up, you know, to something is just, not the way things seem to happen anymore. <laughs> when we made this record, uh, I certainly felt that there were a few tunes on there that might be a little that were a little more accessible than past records, and it was a nice combination of um, of compositions and playing, and a nice balance between the different types of compositions. I think maybe the record before that, which I also think is a wonderful record, maybe emphasized too much on the compositional skills and not enough about the group interplay or, you know, um, and, you know, the soloing. And this record seemed to strike that perfect balance between some great writing and some great playing and also people can hear how, you know, the band has grown, you know, playing together for seven years. It's just musically a perfect combination of stuff and I guess enough people agreed. And a lot of it is just, you know, every once in a while it just takes one or two outlets or entities to decide, like, hey, you know, this this one really works. Um, and the people at iTunes seem to to embrace it and give it that you know the CD of the year and stuff and that seems to be a lot about what what's helping people you know realize it. But um, you know yeah a lot of people have come up to me and said you know you know that, this is a great record it's the best record you guys have done it's the best record I've heard in years and I mean yeah there's been a lot of that so I guess we did something right. <laughs> yeah absolutely I'd say so. Um, I want to go back to the lineage of your life here. You were born and raised in New York City. Yes. What what kind of jazz did you see? What was the what was your childhood like that fostered this love of jazz for you? Uh, wow, absolutely nothing. Um, it came later. <laughs> I was a rock and roll kid. I grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens. I didn't really fit the profile of maybe my my childhood friends who were running around in denim jackets with sweatshirts underneath them and hoods coming out and emblems you know, patches on their, their denim jackets of Black Sabbath and Kiss and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. But I did listen to that music. I mean, the first yeah. that was my first exposure was rock and roll. The rock and roll slowly, I guess, 
turned into more progressive rock and roll, like King Crimson and Gentle Giant, and that progressed into like more European avant-garde rock bands. And then that progressed to fusion, and then that progressed to like to avant-garde jazz, and then finally more straight-ahead jazz. Started playing. I went to art school originally, actually, for photography, and there. Um, I was still playing like trump I played keyboards like in a rock band in high school and I I played trumpet like in the school, you know, concert bands and things like that. So I was I played trumpet for a while but I didn't hear any music applied, you know. And there's no trumpet in Led Zeppelin or any of that stuff. And um but while in art school the guys started turning me on to more avant garde jazz, I started playing trumpet again. But basically pretty free, and I quit art school, and I went to the creative music studio where all good little young avant-garde kids went there. It was a great experience. George Lewis was there. Uh, Leo Smith was there. Um, wow, I can't even remember them all now. Um, wow, my mind's a bit of a blank. Frank Lowe and Philip Wilson. Um, and, you know, people like that. You know, Carl Berger ran the program. But uh, Jimmy Jufri lived up there, and he would come in once a week, and let's say, you know, while he was a very open open musician, he was also very grounded in the tradition, and he took me aside and said, you know, you seem to have very good instincts and, you know, very good um, conception, but, um, you know, you should probably check out. I don't know theory and harmony, <laughs> you know, you know, get a little, you know, get a little more grounded in your 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 knowledge of music, and also create a music studio. I, there was another trumpet player there that I thought was was really really good, you know, more of a free player, more of a Don Cherry type, but an excellent trumpet player and certainly way advanced to me. And I asked him where he went to school, and he said North Texas State. So went back to New York, you know, creative music studio was upstate New York. Started studying with with um, a few more people in the tradition started like buying. I bought a, uh, a book called Twenty Eight Great Trumpet Solos that had solos by Miles and Freddie Hubbard and Lee Morgan, and started buying all the records the solos were on. And you know that was really my first exposure on my own to hearing all that kind of music, and of course was totally enamored by it. Went to North Texas State and found out that guy was the exception and not the rule there that he was the only one like that there and you know that's what I needed the education you know I didn't want to be bouncing around anymore so I stayed in North Texas State and got a more inside education than I ever thought I would get playing in big bands which was not even a, an idea to me but this, you know school is great you know it afford you know really all you need is like one good teacher and, and a lot of time to practice a few other good musicians and, and at the very least North Texas had that and I would come home New York on breaks and study with uh, John McNeil, a great trumpet player, and Carmine Crusoe, who was kind of like a brass guru back then, and get all the information I needed and go to Texas and practice. So why did you pick the trumpet? <laughs> my family, though they might regret this now, um, <laughs> from my mother's side of the family, from my grandmother down, thought all their children should have a well-rounded education, and that included piano lessons. So I started piano lessons when I was maybe 10 years old, and maybe by the time I was 12, I walked into the kitchen and announced to my parents that I wasn't taking piano lessons anymore. I was interfering with Little League and my other athletic endeavors, and it was a complete waste of time. And Scott Chaplin's The Entertainer is just not my idea of, you know. Um, <laughs> and they said, 
well, you have to play some instrument. <laughs> and I said drums, because I was listening to Led Zeppelin, and drums sounded like the most fun thing to do. Yeah. And they said, absolutely not. And I said bass, and, you know, as an electric, you know, electric bass. And they said, no way. And the funny thing is, I don't remember the punchline. I don't know how we got on trumpet. All I can remember is after my first lesson, they sent me to the store to buy something, and I ran, and I think they said something like trumpet would maybe increase my lung capacity and I would be a better athlete or something like that. <laughs> they tricked me <laughs> or something. And then later on I realized I actually saw a childhood, you know, not a really a childhood friend, but uh, somebody who was like a year older than me but was my mother's best friend's kid, and he was taking trumpet lessons back then, and they had a trumpet teacher, so I guess all that was in place for them to easily get me started that way, too. Yeah. So maybe that's how that happened. When you were a kid, what did you dream of being when you grew up? You know, I think from early on, I did dream of being a musician. It's, it's, you know, it's funny. I remember reading a Sonny Rollins interview once, and they asked him, you know, why musician, why saxophone? He said, there was a girl on my street I really liked. You know, and he's talking <laughs> about, like, when he's 12 years old or something. Really had a crush on her. She wouldn't give me the time of day. And I thought if I was going to be a musician, she'd like me. <laughs> and I think it's something along that same line. There was some girl that wasn't that impressed with me, and I thought being a rock star would probably do it. <laughs> so not only are there love songs, there's musicians that have been fueled by love in the very beginning. So. And what other motivation do you have when you're 10 unless you're a child prodigy? Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. So obviously things have gone well. You're a professional musician, very esteemed. And over the years... You've hopped on the stage with, with cats like, you know, Billy Harper, Cecil McBee, and all these others. What is it like to perform at that high level on such a regular basis all the time? Is it just ingrained in you now, or you still get the jitters? What's it like when you get on stage? Well, it never never the jitters. I've, you know, maybe, well, not lately. I don't know. I mean, Freddie Hubbard was like the scariest guy I've been on stage with. I don't know how to explain it, really. I mean, I was sort of helping him. I was sort of in a different kind of position. You know, he was playing sort of with my group. I wrote arrangements for my group to play his music, and it was done, you know, because he was, you know, having trouble with his chops, and we were trying to create, like, a world where he can still, you know, perform productively and, you know, still present something on a high level. So it was more of a collaboration in that way. So... It was like dealing with a different Freddie Hubbard. I don't know, you know, sometimes we, we mythologize these guys so much, they're actually separate from the person you deal with. Yeah. Uh, the Freddie Hubbard on records, or the Freddie Hubbard that I was scared to death of, you know, to meet him, you know, before we started this stuff. Well, I was certainly aware that was Freddie Hubbard. It wasn't as, in, I don't know, scary, because I was contributing something to the mix that was important, maybe. I don't know how... You know, and that's a lot of the situations I've been have been like that. I don't know. You know, so it may take some of the edge off. I mean, I do, you know, with the cookers, I am painfully aware of the level of the people I'm dealing with sometimes. Because yeah. basically any time I think I make strides to get close, they show me how much more they have. Yeah. They're not doing it on purpose or anything, but I mean, <laughs> that's just what I'm dealing with. And it's a dynamic I'm used to, I guess. So I guess I guess I'm used to it. I mean, some days I I get through the day okay, and some days I'm like, oh Jesus Christ! I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, um, I'm never unaware of it. Let's say, um, 
But a lot of it, like I said, is partially muted by the fact that I'm bringing something else to the table that partially justifies my reason for for being there. Yeah. Um, And it's the least I can do, and it's probably the only thing I can do to, you know, be there with those guys. Um, You know, it certainly helped me grow into into something, but, um, you know, it's the fact that I'm able to create these things that... It doesn't level the playing field, but you know, justifies my existence a little more. I'm not just like some schmuck trying to walk on stage with some of the greatest musicians on earth and go, doing. You know, I belong here. You're like, yeah, right, kid, get go, go. You know, you know, and I've, you know, I've, I've brought a couple of people into the mix, sometimes as subs, and you know, they, they get it. I mean, it's, it's a heavy bunch of guys coming from an era, you know, of a bunch of heavy guys, more heavy guys. You know, no, I'm painfully aware of it, but you know, I'd rather have that. Yeah. You know, I'd rather have. You know, it doesn't feel great every day, but I'd rather be in a position where I'm getting my ass kicked every day instead of where I'm Superman every day. This is like relationships. Some guys like to, you know, idolize the woman they're with and always feel insignificant compared to them, and you know, inferior, and just you know, praise the ground they walk on. And some people like to dominate. I mean, you know, it's it's. It's a taste thing, I guess. I'm happier being challenged every day. I feel good every day, but um, you know, I have a, more of a fighting chance then. This is my next question for you. You're, being a part of an of an outfit playing is one thing, but you're also a very adept arranger. You've you've arranged for Phil Woods and Vincent Herring and Tony Hart. What is it like to be in that? Oh, it's a record. I mean, the arranging, the real arranging I've done is with Freddie Hubbard and the Cookers, and yeah. also this Wayne Shorter project I did. You know, doing the music of Wayne Shorter for like a, you know, eleven uh, piece band. I mean, Phil Woods, Antonio Hart, Vincent. Dem- yeah, that was an alto legacy band. That was nice too. I mean, that was a one off record alto summit that we thought would be nice of. You know, sort of just a straight out blowing session. We would, you know, do some decent. Um, you know, make it a little maybe more complete record if we had some decent arrangements and stuff like that. But yeah, the arranging thing, it, it you know, it came around. I mean, I didn't really study arranging in college. I never really had much of an interest of it, but it it, it came out of necessity. I mean, I it started with people knowing I was able to transcribe tunes off records, you know. And some guys wanted like, "Hey, I want to play this tune, you know, can you transcribe it for me?" And then a lot of in the 90s, a lot of record dates were producer driven when everybody had money and everybody was making records. Everybody wanted to do the music of so and so or the music of this and music of that. Um, and they were producer-driven records, and producers aren't musicians usually, and somebody needed to write out all the music. So they hired me. Yeah. David, yeah. <laughs> write out all this music. <laughs> We're fine. And then that turned into things like Alto Legacy, like, oh, we have three or four saxophones on this date. Maybe you should write an arrangement. Well, okay. So I wrote some arrangements. And at some point, you know, and the Freddie Hubbard thing, the same thing, you know, um, we decided the first record we did, which was you know produced by actually by Vincent Herring and Carl Allen, was the first record right after he was starting to have chop problems, and we all kind of sat and decided like maybe a larger ensemble would help buffer it, and we can make a better record this way, um, and we get some great arrangements. So let's hire Bob Minzer and Bob Belden, and oh David, yeah you can do a couple too, you know, and those kind of things are what piqued my interest on it, you know. I'd, I liked arranging for that octet, and that's why I formed the the composer's octet, um, which in the end wound up playing with with Freddie Hubbard a bit. It wasn't exactly my impetus at first, but doing all that stuff kind of created the interest. 
partially, you know, because I, you know, and also because once you do a lot of work like that for other people, you go like, hey, really, wait, I, I can come up with an idea like this. Yeah. <laughs> I could arrange it, you know, and one I like. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I might as well do this. So when you look back on your life of all the periods of creativity that you've been involved with, what period has been the most prolific? I don't know, last week. <laughs> um, hopefully now. I mean, stuff stuff runs in cycles, you know, unless you're just a, a superstar, you know, and working all the time and busy all the time. Unless you're one of the real prominent names in jazz, this stuff goes in cycles, mm-hmm. you know. I guess I can say I'm prolific every day in my living room, you know, <laughs> writing or practicing or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I do recall some of the busiest periods of my career, which actually was like maybe two summers ago. Um, I remember being very busy with like two or three different projects. I don't know, next week, hopefully. I imagine it's in my future, or I hope it's in my future. Um I mean, the cookers are still going. I'm at my my two bands. I'm getting ready. To, I've actually started the process of recording uh, my Point of Departure group, which is my younger band. Um, and we're going to finish that record this year. And like I said, we're getting ready to do the next cookers record. Uh, my tour schedule might not be that busy this fall, but I'll you know I'll be recording two CDs or preparing to make you know record two CDs. Um, there's always something else on the back burner. Um, yeah. So hopefully it's my future. But I mean, you know. I don't know if prolific. You know, I don't. You know, I don't know what it. What it really turns out being, you know, uh, you know, like I said, two summers ago, I remember touring a lot, and I remember like three or four projects sort of happening at once, and it was an incredibly busy summer and a lot of fun. Um, but I don't know if I was ever really that much more prolific than any other time. <laughs> I don't know, because, yeah, I mean, there's other factors involved. I mean, if I have a new CD out now, then everybody thinks I'm being, or two CDs out in a year, like last year, you know, then every, then the world thinks I'm prolific. If I just do a lot of tours and do a project that doesn't get off the ground, then I think I'm prolific, but nobody else. I don't know. I mean, the goal is always to be busier, you know, if you're not one of those superstars. So, you know, I'm just hoping the covers get some more work. I hope when I make this point of departure record, you know, the world will embrace it a little bit so I can actually get a little work for that band. Yeah. Because uh, my own personal recognition, I guess, with my own groups is certainly lagging behind this other stuff I do. And it would be nice to get that going. I mean, ideally, the cookers are amazing, but, I mean, one has to have a little, I don't know, a little pride in their own albums, too. <laughs> yeah. And hope, hope one can get a little, you know, I don't care about recognitions. I, one, you know, I think music. I think yes, things get turned around. I mean, I don't really need recognition that much, except that's what I need to get gigs. So then I guess okay, <laughs> it's the only way to get a gig. Um, sure. And I think that kind of stuff is getting confused a lot in social media, where you know everybody's trumpeting this about themselves or trumpeting that for themselves, and it might have started out of the necessity, to, you know. Of, thinking they need to get their name out there so they can work or, you know. Yeah, I mean, the goal, I mean, the cookers are, you know, amazing and, you know, nothing has probably helped me grow more as a musician than being around those guys for the last seven years. I mean, Freddie Hubbard was pretty damn important, too. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, you know, my 
point departure group, and we play once, at least once a month in New York, and do other gigs, and it's young guys, and the band is growing, and you know, appeals to a different audience, hopefully, and you know, it'd be nice if, I don't know, a few people heard about it. Right now, we're working, you know, we're like I said, we're working on that record, and and we'll see. Right on. Let me ask you this: You've been taught by some. I'm prolific rehearsing with them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So you've been taught by some really amazing musicians over the years. Who has taught you the most? That's hard to say because things happen in different different ways, and, and people also have different processes of doing it. I think uh, my first real quote-unquote jazz teacher, John McNeil, probably taught me more than anyone just because he was able to... to kind of distill the language to something very clear to somebody very early. I mean, yeah. It puts you on the right track right away, which is a very good thing. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, just the work you do on your own. Once you're given a path or you have a, have a clue as to what to do, it's really, you know, what you do for yourself. I mean, Freddie Hubbard never really sat down and overtly showed me trumpet stuff, but um, he would always get a comment or two in have something to say about the way I phrase stuff or, you know, a little off-the-cuff comment might have more meaning than two years studying with somebody. You know, so like I said, everybody's style is different. The guys in the cookers, they show, they lead by example. I mean, technically, I guess I'm the band leader, as absurd as that is. So they're, you know, or we're a band of equals as far as being on the stage, but they're the ones who got a lot to teach me, but I'm the one who's like rehearsing the, the tunes and trying to get things tight. So it's it's a strange dynamic sometimes where I get to, you know, sort of rehearse guys that I have no right rehearsing. But that's the dynamic of the band. I wrote the arrangement or something and, you know, trying to get the band, you know, to be right. And, you know, they're good sports about it because they care about the music and want everything to be right, too. But they will give me shit sometimes. Billy Harper will point out that I miss this or this and, you know, or phrase this this way, you know, because it's his music. Billy Hart will, when we're walking off the stage after a gig, you know, like, hey, you know, you're probably took one chorus too many on that tune, didn't you? And I'm like, yeah, I know. You know, they're not telling me anything I don't know, but coming from them, you know, like, yeah, we noticed that. You know, a lot of it's a responsibility to yourself. I mean, a lot of it is having those guys around you to to put your mindset in in that frame of mind, like, oh, you know, I better... I better do this, I better do this. I won't be able to get away with this. I won't be able to get away. I mean, and that's like the philosophy behind the, the the cookers in general is that the bar is raised so high nobody you know everybody has to kind of bring their best and that they come from that kind of era they come from you know playing with Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins and Art Flakey and Max Roach and Lee Morgan I mean I'd be insane if I didn't walk in there with that same attitude like oh these guys are going to kill me I, I better have my shit together I better <laughs> do this I better be at the top of my game you know let me ask you this Sure. And when you were really getting into into jazz in the beginning, were there any particular albums that just floored you that really kind of opened some curtains for you? Well, there there were some along. There was some that I still look back that you know got me in touch with my love for music. I won't go all the way back to the, the like the rock albums or the, the weird fusion records, but a lot of the fusion records got me on the right. The Mahavishnu Orchestra. Um, Hearing, you know, one of those records really helped get me in touch. A guy named David Sanctus was a fusion keyboard player. 
um, his records were like, well, you know, just had a really powerful impact. I mean, then, you know, the avant-garde stuff, you know, Cecil Taylor and Albert Eiler, actually. I mean, I was, the first thing that attracted me to jazz and avant-garde jazz was the energy because I was a rock and roll guy. So the guys that just, you know, really, like Cecil Taylor, all, it was all that energy. Um, you know, and later on, you know, as I developed more of a harmonic palette, say, then, you know, those that kind of music changed for me, at least how I how I perceived it. But at the time, they meant a lot to me. Um, the Cecil Taylor band with Jimmy Lyons and this trumpet player named Ralphie Malik was and Ron, Ronald Sean Jackson. I played I think played drums. This one called Live in the Black Forest or something like that. I played that to death and, and Albert Eiler. Uh, and who else from that? And then the early jazz stuff. It's weird that I can't place that and I can place these other things. It's 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 you know, it's it's stuff that hits you in your childhood, it doesn't go away. Yeah. I'm more more in awe sometimes of meeting one of those weird avant garde guys than I am dealing with like my real heroes now. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I was an adult or something when I heard him. Um But a lot of the the I like Miles Davis, certainly my funny Valentine was something and the the plug nickel stuff when that came out. Um, around midnight, I think that's the first time I like sat down and learned solos for those miles of solos on on round midnight, the record round midnight. So bye bye Blackbird and dear old Stockholm and Taz Delight, Wayne Shores, you all sing I was a lot and speak no evil, and then from then it was like everything. Oh, you know, like those Blue Note records, all the Joe Henderson records and Kenny Dorham records. Yeah. Um, and the Miles Electric stuff still. Um, you know, a lot of people are getting the Lost Quintet is getting a lot of press now because of you know the the set they put out a couple of years ago. Um, but I mean, I was given cassettes of that stuff in college, and it just just blew me away. Yeah, Point of Departure band is sort of a nod to the, the energy that band had. Yeah. They were they were hard hitting. Yeah, yeah, I think you nailed it. Let, let me ask you this: What's the greatest thing about waking up every day? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I got a roof over my head. But <laughs> I got enough sleep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the music business is a rough business. I think any day where I can get right to music and not have to deal with some of the other, any yeah, any day that music is the first priority and it's not life or 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 the music industry at its worst or whatever. It's a it's a battle to get to do what you want to do, but it's it's a battle worth fighting certainly. Why do you love jazz? You know, as you as I've explained to you, you know, it's it was a pretty long journey to get to where I am now. So I don't know if this is an answer from the heart or from 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 the brain or from the intellect part of it. But um I've pretty much covered everything mm-hmm. along the way. Um and I've arrived here and I, I think that I arrived here for a reason. I mean, if my search is to find the music that has the most impact on me, that, you know, and also is the thing that I've chosen to play and express myself in this way after going through almost every kind of rock and fusion and world and everything else, um, and this is the conclusion I came to, so it must be (laughs) something pretty good. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, 
the harmony, you know, it's, you know, well, I guess it's like how I try to explain this music to everybody else. I get this, like, well, you know, from people that I meet or whatever, like, you know, I really want to like jazz, but I think I need to know more about it or, you know, they appeal to this, you know, this intellect thing. They just don't have the this or the that to appreciate it or that. Um, and some are, like, intimidated by that. Um, and I tell them all the same thing. Like, look, any music has to grab you at a basic level. Mm-hmm. You know, with the rhythm of it, the feel of it, the swing of it, you know, the groove of it, whatever it is that draws you in, jazz should draw you in the same way. You know, the difference with that jazz might have that a lot of other music might might not have or might not have as as in spades as jazz does. It's if you want all that other stuff, it's there too, you know. If you want, like, advanced harmony or advanced rhythms or advanced this or, you know, complex this or complex that, all that's there, too. But in the end, that basic thing has to draw you in. Um, So when I'm playing music, you know, the most infectious thing is, is the rhythm. If it's, you know, if it's grooving or swinging or if it's a groove thing or whatever, I mean, that's the base thing that attracts me to this music and makes me love it more than any other music I've played or listened to. And then I'm drawn into the tune I'm playing or I'm drawn into who's ever solo, whatever they're doing, you know. You know, then there's that. And, you know, I've written rock tunes or whatever, you know. It's just the most interesting stuff to me. I mean, you know... It's, it can be very advanced harmonically, and, and so my intellect, as far as trying to grow as a musician, you know, trying to do everything, you know, that's that's covered, and it grows, and you know, and a lot of the bands are always this um, way of reckoning the two, and I think the best music that we've had in it, you know, in jazz has has been a way to reckon, reckon reconcile the two things, the the intellect and the groove. Yeah, you know, yeah, or the fight between straight ahead and avant garde, even or daring and inside or whatever, and you know, and that tension. Um, I think all the best music is created like that. All those classic blue notes or whatever, they always had. You know, the, the feel is there. I mean, Alfred Lyon and, and Francis Wolfe. You know, if you read their letters to people, you know, they always talk about the groove. And Freddie Hubbard used to talk about them. You know, little German guys dancing in the studio, and you know, you know. That was yeah. an important part of it. And, you know, I think I've realized this once I did a gig with Jerry Allen was a trio and a tap dancer. And going in, I was like, huh, a tap dancer, really? And then I realized that me and her could almost do anything. And then a the tap dancer would come in and bring it all back down to earth and give the crowd something, the crowd-pleasing aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, all all music has that. I mean, you know... Clearly, people who want it to be all about intellect have that too, with you know more you know daring or avant-garde music or whatever. Um, but most people are tra- attracted to a rhythm, and, and so am I. Yeah, I like that. You know, a good beat, a good groove is, is infectious, and that's what's going to draw people in, and it's what yeah. drew me in. Yeah, I didn't, I'm not. There's no other rhythmic thing, swing thing, I'm, you know, there's just nothing else that interests me like that. I mean, 
I used to, I mean, I still think this too, that, you know, actually, you know, salsa music might be the best combination of everything because it's very complex rhythmically, you know, until the last few years when it also became more poppy, you know, the, the music was very, very complex, the writing, the arrangements for the horns were very interesting, and you had a pretty boy singer up front that yeah. brought it to the world, yeah. you know. Yeah. The singer's what got him, and, and the groove, you know, and... and the other stuff was, you know, was there too. So the musicians were playing on a level, and they, but they're, you know, they're playing their pop music in a way. But it was very, you know, very complex music, and I always thought that was very cool. And I always loved playing in salsa bands, and um, and you know, a compelling soloist, I guess, is our version of that, you know, or something that might be a little more groove orientated. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it seems like. For you know, for me, as far as the perfect combination of what gets me off intellectually, you know, as a musician, and what gets me off groove-wise as a musician, it's, you know, it's jazz. So let me ask you this: you've you've had a long career up to this point. You're very far from being done. But if you look back, think, uh, you know, look back over your career, how would you want the world to remember what you've given to the world of jazz music? The um, frustrated musician part of me, I think, would want to say that all I wish the critics would look at my body of work and 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 see if I don't deserve a little <laughs> something for the body of work. Not just the cookers or Freddie Hubbard, but my the new jazz composers octet, you know, I formed a composers collective for young composers before most people thought of that kind of thing. My own sextet for my own writing and this point of departure band which explores a lot of a lot of obscure music let's say and you know but again it's more of that groove orientated stuff where you're trying to that fight between groove and complexity and all that and then plus the cookers plus freddie hubbard plus the wayne shorter you know music wayne shorter big band you know i i hope i've consistently put out good work for quite some time now um um so it'd be nice to see if some, you know, some people in the industry like looked at the body of work, you know, and said, you know, that, and also that you don't have to be like a quote-unquote avant-garde musician to do a lot of very interesting things, because um, that's most people who are attributed to like a wide range of projects are usually in that camp. Yeah. Um, and as far as the world, I just, you know. I remember watching a Richard Pryor documentary lately, and I think Barbara Walters told me, like, how would you like to be remembered? And I was like, well, I just hope I put a smile, you know, I put a smile on her face. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I hope they liked the music. Whatever, which one of my projects they picked out, you know, I hope hope they liked it. I hope it's, you know, it's one of their favorite music, you know, one of their favorite records, or they got them through a day. I mean, that's, that's the other thing that's a joy playing with the old guys with, because, you know, the... When you asked me what I liked about jazz or whatever, what I what I didn't really cover because I wasn't there was you know jazz was an important part of a movement you know mm -hmm. you know the whole civil rights thing or whatever you know jazz was the fab you know the music of a certain you know world we lived in for a while it was the music that expressed what was going on in this world and it doesn't seem to have that anymore yeah um, and also. I guess people listen to music differently now. It's like when I, you know, Freddie Hubbard. I'd be, you know, be after a gig with him. People would come up to him, man, you know, I, you know, 
I was this, I was that, and then I listened to this, and man, it really just changed my life, or did this for me, or I got married to this, or I got I met my first this with this, and you know, it just seemed to be of a higher importance. It was just woven into the fabric of the world more. Um, yeah. You know, and the cookers too. I mean, you know, there's there's you know there's a history to this stuff now. You know, and with Billy Harper and these guys. Oh man, I saw you with Art Blakey in 1964, and man, that you know really kind of changed my life. And you know, I don't get that touring with the young guys. You yeah. Know? Um, and that that you know that's really special. You know, I mean, I've gotten that playing on vacation music. I mean, you know, I remember you know I toured with this Haitian band and and. You know, we'd be in like Haiti or somewhere in the Caribbean, and being this big outdoor festival, and they'd like, grab a couple of women out of the crowd and bring them on stage, um, and they all knew like every note of every tune. You know, anyway, they bring these women on stage, and they start playing a groove, and the women would start dancing, and then the groove would get more and more and more intense, and the women would you know, well, maybe fake it, but like pretend to have convulsions and start rolling on the floor. The music was so intense and over, so overwhelming. So, you know, it was a good show. It's nice to see those things like how strong of an impact music could have on people. And like I said, Freddie especially, but the other guys as well, you can really see it by, you know, you know all the, you know, all the people who came up to him. It's, you know, Red Clay changed my life. Yeah, man. When I heard Greg Clay do this, I was doing this, and I was doing this, and I was, you know, I proposed to my wife. You know, it, it brings them back to a certain part of their life, or you know, it defines that that moment in their life, or something like that. And that's nice to see. You know, it's, you know, I, I mean, I think most of us get into music for more purely selfish reasons, but it's nice to have that effect certainly, and it's nice to reach that people. And that's another important lesson Freddie Hubbard, uh, hopefully, taught the young guys and the band when we were all together. I mean, Freddie was like one of the most complex musicians we've ever seen, you know. But he wrote tunes like Red Clay and Up Drum Spring, you know, these things that really reached people. And, you know, and he knew how to put, you know, 5,000 people in the palm of his hand. He had, yeah. you know, also, yeah, that's another thing. I mean, these, we don't have personalities like those guys. I mean, yeah. Not just, yeah, I mean, you know, those guys are larger than life, Miles and Freddie and, you know. Well, we still got Herbie Hancock. But, you know. They're like larger-than-life personalities and larger-than-life figures. The Cookers were part of that, the guys in the Cookers. Again, that was the high point of jazz, and any exposure I can get to that, and it's probably a beautiful thing. I mean, a lot of young guys will, will, will never have that, and the irony is they don't seem that interested in it anyway. <laughs> They're doing their thing, and, hey, I'm doing my thing. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's great. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's interesting. Yeah, that, that's... That was actually my last question. That was a great way to sum everything up. David, thank you for taking a little time and opening up with me. I really appreciate it. Sure, no problem. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to David for his music, his cool, and his honesty. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Or you can always visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.